Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who chooses to join us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and you click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, That chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. If you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. 
do that. Press 1 on your phone. It'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. You can also email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. And or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And we appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it so much easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service. And that's just a lot easier to do when we know how these things are landing for you. What's helping What are you getting the most mileage from? And what can we do more of to support you in learning how to use these tools and getting maximum benefits from them? I I occasionally mention the uh, We Can Do Hard Things podcast, and they seem to be on a roll because I I mentioned when they did um, yesterday or the day before, in which they uh, yeah had it yesterday as Monday, in which they talked about writing letters to themselves from unconditional love. And today they published one that is an interview with Laura McGowan, who is somebody that I was able to interview twice already in the past few years and um, she's the author of the book We Are the Luckiest and her second book Push Off From Here which um, are, are not just books about recovering from an addictive process they're really books about putting together a healthy life recognizing what it is that might be standing in your way of putting together together a healthy life. And among other things, working to be radically, fundamentally more honest with yourself and others in your close inner circle as a true spiritual practice all by itself. So that... That podcast just got posted today, and um, I'm three-quarters of the way through it. It is a familiar story. She is uh, very bright, very committed to helping herself and others, and it might be worth a listen. And as for our work here, we are stepping our way through the way of mastery with commentary this year. And um, the plan is to get back to that if nobody raises a hand. Again, please remember that we always welcome someone raising a hand, even if it seems that we're in the middle of something. It is always useful to entertain questions from people. So if you've got a question for us, a comment, 
let us know. 563-999-3581. And once you call that number, press 1 on your phone. And um, I will do my best to monitor the switchboard and catch that as soon as that happens and uh, entertain your comments and questions. I was um, having very little success remembering I didn't go back to the archives and listen to the uh, the show the last time I was reading from the way of mastery was at home so I'm going to just take a guess at where I am in the book backing up just a little bit and it's talking in lesson six about how love heals all things and we were talking about the very loving, gentle nature of this message and the idea that when you recognize that whatever source has given rise to you, contrary to what most religious uh, teachings I've ever been exposed to would say, the source that gave, gave rise to you accepts you, loves you, embraces you unconditionally. That's that's the quick summary of the first part of this lesson six. The title of the lesson is Love Heals All Things, and the title of the last section that I read was If You Would Know Love, capital L, Love, then just get to know yourself. The next section is titled, The Primary Characteristic of Mastery. And I know I've read some of this before but on Friday, but I'm, I'm just going to start here today. Fearlessness is the primary characteristic of mastery. Mastery is not having great power to make things happen. Mastery is is only the recognition that what is true is true always and there is no other choice. Free will does not mean that you have the right to believe that you can succeed at being other than what your creator created you to be. Having free will does not mean that you can elect not to take the curriculum that life itself is offering to you in every moment. The free will means only that you do have the right to put it off yet another day. And each time that you put it off, you slumber in your suffering. And my interpretation of that is you're creating the suffering by putting off your participation in the curriculum of life You're creating suffering by assuming that life should be other than it is and that you're right and life is wrong. And so rather than asking to be taught by life in each moment, 
you argue against life and that creates your suffering and the slumbering in your suffering is in our culture when we suffer we've been trained and conditioned to believe that it's people and things outside of us that are causing our suffering so we deny and then we project The text goes on then and says, but when you elect to take the only curriculum that matters, when you elect to use the power of your free will to say the following, quote, now from this moment on, I will no longer tolerate error in myself. No more games, no more dreams. I am committed to being only the presence of love for that is the capital T truth of who I am, close quotes. Once you do that, it matters not the opinions of others who are yet resisting that decision. Then indeed, once you do that, all things under heaven and earth move to support you, to guide you to the right person, to the right place, to the right book, to the right sunrise, to the right meadow in order to assist you in dropping the shackles of the obstacles to the awareness of the presence of love that you have created as an idol or a substitute for love. We in our culture have been conditioned to believe that love is something that we do or we get from people around us, etc., that we have not been trained to observe and to learn that we are a gift of life, that we are a miracle, that we are a mystery and part of a greater mystery. We've not been trained and conditioned to look inside for all the sustenance and nurturing that could ever be, which is our true nature, which is our birthright. So we've created all of these obstacles to our awareness of our true nature as love and we worship things outside of us idols stereos cars looks surgeries to change our looks etc and we think that is going to make us feel loved accepted valued the text goes on and says, that is why when you truly pray from the depth of your soul, quote, creator, bring me home, close quotes. Once you do that, you may rest assured from that moment on, it is absolutely fine to trust every little thing that unfolds. For though you will see it not, what you call angels, friends who simply do not have bodies, these entities are rushing about because you have given them the command. Here's the command. Quote, yes, I accept your presence in my life. I turn the whole thing over. Now, in each moment, I am dedicated to healing and awakening the illusory sense of separation from the Creator that I once created in error. Close quotes. 
the book asks, in how many ways have you sought for love? Can you even count the ways? Would you dare to try to count the little pebble of sand, each little pebble of sand on the beaches of your planet? Each and every soul that exists has already tried to seek out love in that many ways and more. You have sought it in a million forms in which you already knew that you could not find it, all because you wanted to perpetuate the insane attempt to try to separate yourself from your creator. And that is as futile as a sunbeam trying to separate itself from the sun. Indeed, beloved friends, there is only one question you need to answer. What am I choosing in this moment? What have I given mastery of my life over to? What perception, what thought, what feeling? Feeling merely flows from the thought or the perception you have chosen. What behavior, what action am I choosing in this moment? And does it express the reality of my being? Am I being busy extending love? Or am I busying myself fearfully trying to grasp at what I think can give me love so that I do not lose it? Powerful questions. Am I busy being extending love, being love, choosing to share only my loving thoughts? Or am I busying myself from a fear-based reaction, trying to grasp at what I think can give me love, trying to hold on to what I think is giving me these good feelings so I don't lose it? The text goes on and reads, Look well, then, upon your parents, your siblings, your mates, and your friends. Not one of them, not one of them holds the power to bring love to you. So what are you trying to get from them? Why do you ever insist that another person ought to be conformed to what you believe you need? It is futile. It is 100% absolutely positively futile to seek love in relationship with anything or anyone. It is, however, very appropriate to extend love in each relationship with everyone and everything. However, the extension of love requires that you have awakened to the truth that the only relationship that truly holds any value for you is the relationship between you as the soul and your creator. Imagine a light bulb in one of your fixtures that looks out from the little filaments and says... Well, I hope the person that just walked in the door is the right one. If I could just reach out and grab them, maybe my own light would come on. 
is it not a lot easier to simply take the cord and plug it into the, the correct socket? How many times are you going to insist on trying to plug your cord into the wrong socket? Well, that one didn't work. I'll try this body. Hmm, I guess I'll try this person. Well, then I'll try this career. I'm not getting very much juice from that either. And then you get angry because it's not giving you enough juice. Or it gave you enough juice yesterday, but not today. So it must be its fault. Listen, there is one little tiny socket into which you can plug your cord. It is the only one that it fits in. It is the only socket wired to bring you the flowing and living waters of grace. And that socket dwells within your own heart. Not the physical heart, but that which is symbolized by the physical heart, the core of your very being. How many times in each day do you check to see if the cord is still plugged in? How many times do you remember to ask yourself, quote, is my commitment to love or is my commitment to fear? Close quotes. Fear is the act of disconnecting your cord from the only socket that can truly satisfy you. And once you've disconnected your cord, then you start running about trying to plug it into everybody else's or something else's. And I would ask you to consider this one question as you look upon the whole of your experience. Has that ever worked? Can it ever work? Imagine trying to hold flowing water in the palm of your hand by squeezing the fingers together. How much are you left with? Does it not just run through the fingers no matter how hard you try? It finds the little holes and it flows away. Open your hand and there's not enough there left to wet your tongue. Yet each time you have looked upon another person, whether it was a parent or a sibling or a friend or a mate or a teacher or whatever physical person or object, each time you've looked upon them and tried to plug into that socket to get the juice you believe you need, that is just what you are doing. And you literally end up squeezing the life out of the relationship itself. When you seek first the kingdom and then you plug that cord into the socket within your own heart, when you remember that you and your father are one, that only love is real and that nothing else matters and you remember that the temptation to find love outside of your self, capital S self, is nothing more than the echo of an old habit. And that habit cannot live unless you feed it. Therefore, Feed the only habit that matters, the habit of remembering that the capital T truth is true always, regardless of what is passing before your physical eyes and passing before your mind.
in all comings and goings, in all the births and deaths, in all arising and passing away of universe after universe after universe, in the midst of a flat tire or a sudden rainstorm, nothing, nothing holds value except your relationship with your Creator. When you have experienced in relationship with anyone or anything a moment of true bliss, a moment of peace that forever passes all understanding, a moment of fulfillment so sweet and so sublime that no word could touch it, much less express it, what you have experienced is only the flow of the love of creation through you. That person or thing did not cause it. It, that feeling, was caused because for just a moment you stepped out of your drama. You stepped out of your dream and you allowed the capital T truth to be lived. And then, of course, you tricked yourself into believing Oh, God, that was so sweet. That was the best thing I've ever tasted. It must come from you. Get over here. I need you. If ever you believe you need anything or anyone, rest assured in that moment you are living in delusion. Now, comes to me to say, this is in the absolute sense. So Guy Finley has a, a way of talking about this where he says everything works in, in scale. And at one level of scale, we need other people to survive on this planet, in the physical realm, to have a city, to have a community, to have a family. Everybody plays their part. And it's true at a certain level of scale. This is talking about in an absolute sense to have an experience of love. Wake up and recognize that you're made of the stuff we call love, that you can extend that energy of creation in every interaction with everyone and everything. And when you extend it, you experience it. You feel it. This is not a zero-sum game where you've only got 100 units of love and if you give 50 away, you're left with 50. And then if you give 25 away, you're only left with 25. And then you give 15 away and you're only left with 10. It doesn't work that way. The more you give of this energy that you're made of, the more you experience it in your core and let it resonate out from you, the more you feel it, the more you have to give it's not a zero-sum game. It is the energy of creation which is always expanding and extending and growing itself. Guy Finley has a talk where he, he takes the, the famous line from the movie Jerry Maguire at the end of the movie where he says, you complete me. And he builds a talk around that where he says, 
people complete us. We can we get complete in relationship. But he's really talking about it very much the way Michael Rice talks about it. Whereas if you put two people together long enough, they're going to step on each other's bags of garbage. And if you've entered a relationship with the ideal that I want to heal my garbage, then anybody or any interaction you have with somebody in the world around you that you interpret in such a way that it resonates your garbage is a gift if you choose to view it that way. Now your own garbage is coming to your conscious awareness. It's coming up not to punish you, not to beat you, not to wear you down, but as an opportunity for you to heal it. And that's exactly the way Guy Finley's talking about it when he says, you complete me, because it's only in interaction with other people that you're going to get stirred up and see and feel the things that are less than love that are held within you. There's a story of a monk that went up to live in a cave in the Himalayas and of course, their holy people are revered, and so townspeople come and they leave offerings. And he was up there for quite a while, and people would ask him what you're doing up here, and he would say he's practicing his patience. So uh, a fairly enlightened person came up and heard about this in the village and went up to this cave and interrupted the, the, the would-be holy man in there who's trying to practice his patience. And he said, hey, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here meditating and, and practicing patience. And the enlightened person said, well, you know, that's the story you tell the, the townspeople so they'll come and, and leave offerings for you. But, you know, you and I both know you're up here just to get away from everything, right? It, and it's nice that they come and bring you food and offerings. And, and he kept at it until the would-be holy person in the cave erupted in anger and said, why are you bothering me? Why don't you leave me alone? And the enlightened person said, oh, wait a minute, where's your patience now? So it's in that vein that Guy Finley says, we grow through relationship, just like Michael Rice has his healing through relationship talk. So in that sense, at that level, we need other people. We need interactions. We need relationship to grow. In another ultimate sense, you do not need anyone to feel love or to feel loved. That energy of creation, which is your true nature, you need to look for and remove every obstacle to your awareness that that's your birthright, that that's the capital T truth that is true always. That the only relationship that you need worry about is your relationship with your creator because all other relationships flow from that. And there can't be a relationship in your life that is of higher quality than that because all relationships flow from that. Guy Finley says it, seek first the first excellence and then all other excellences will follow.
So please try to remember as you're hearing this reading that this is done in scale. And so at one level, all you need is love. And that's inside you. And that's a connection to the direct awareness of your connection to your creator. At other levels of scale, as we interact with other people and we keep the awareness that anything that's less than love that comes out of us is what was in us. And it's ours to dismantle. It's ours to see as false. The next section in this lesson six is titled, All You Need Is Love. Love fulfills all things. Love embraces all things. Love heals all things. Love transforms all things. Therefore, remember, remember this well. You and only you can become the cause of your fulfillment, your peace, and your completion of time. This requires that you do nothing except remember to establish the connection with your Creator, the conscious connection with your Creator. Is it not true that what you desire most of all is love, capital L, love? Is it not true that you hope that each relationship, no matter how short, no matter what its form, that each journey, that each undertaking will allow you to experience peace? Is it not true that you who find yourselves in and as a body temporarily in time, is it not true that the grandest of experiences you have known have been those that seem to flood the very cells of the body with this capital L love energy, with a sublime bliss and a peace? Isn't that the truth? Accept that truth that what you desire beyond all things is the living experience of love. And then remember this, quote, Nothing you do can bring love to you. Nothing you do can keep love for yourself in a form of your choosing. Nothing you do, nothing you do can make love appear in the form of your insistence. Close quotes. This is critical. Love is not your thoughts about love. Love is not going to be made over into what you've been taught it should be. Love is the energy of creation. You're part of it. You're part of creation. You're part of the energy of creation. So once you accept the truth that the most important, the most pleasant things that have happened to you as a body in time have been those moments, 
those experiences that seem to flood the body and the very cells of your body with this vibrant energy that would, most people use words like bliss and love and sublime bliss and peace. Once you recognize that that's the best you've ever experienced in a physical body, then remember this. You can't make it happen with your conscious, logical mind. Nothing you can do can bring love to you. Nothing you can do can keep love for yourself in a form of your choosing. This is where people say, if you loved me, you would this, this, and this. That's not how love works. You don't get to decide how love is going to show up. You don't get to decide how the world is going to unfold. This is life. This is creation. This is a flow of energy and creation beyond what your conscious logical mind can comprehend. And it wraps up with saying, nothing you do can make love appear in the form that you insist it should. So the text goes on and asks us to release the drama, release the dream, and choose to remember that the capital T truth that is true always, and then return to the kingdom within you prior to every breath, and remind yourself to say to your creator, quote, I want only that which is true always. Love is what I want. Love is what you are. Love is what I receive. Love is who I am. I and my creator are one. Close quotes. The text goes on and says, Here, prior to every breath, when you have this thought, when you make this statement, here and here alone is where you discover what you seek. Then you become free to walk this earth, to be in the world but not of it. And though your friends will look upon you and they will still see a man or a woman who seems to act much like them, yet though they see it not, Christ dwells with them. Something in them keeps attracting them to you. They're not sure what it is. Is it the shape of your body? Is it the radiance of your eyes? It is not these things. It is that they feel the quality of love. Because when you've made this statement and you get your thoughts about love out of the way and you quit demanding that love show up the way you want it and you keep saying prior to every breath to your creator, I only want that which is true always. Love is what I receive from you. Love is who I am. Love is what I extend to others. You become that wide open conduit. And that's what people feel. The text goes on and says, Can you imagine walking upon this earth and no matter where you are, feeling as though every wisp of cloud 
and every blade of grass and all good things under heaven and earth were already residing with you within this sphere of your continents. Can you imagine walking upon this earth and sensing that the light from the farthest of stars that shines during the night is already within you? That the whole of creation was held in the palms of your hands? Would there yet be room to convince yourself that there's something you lack, something you need? Would there be any restlessness that you you, you feel must be valid? In truth, you are like a person who was given a perfect treasure, a priceless jewel. You've placed it in your pocket, And then you forgot that you possess it. So now you run around trying to look into everybody else's pocket. You've tried to seduce certain ones to surrender so that you can own the clothing and therefore try to possess the jewel that you hope is in their pocket. But the great truth is that you cannot possess capital L love until you set it free. You cannot move into holy relationship with anyone or anything until you give up all trace of need to possess it. When your only desire is this capital L love, you will be willing to set anyone free to support him or her in their own journey, no matter what it is or what it takes. And yet, you will never feel your love waver. If a twinge of sadness arises because you recognize that two bodies in time and space are now going to different parts of the planet... As that twinge arises, you will recognize it as the effect of a mistaken perception. You will move within to the place in which all minds are joined. You will remember that your fulfillment does not rest in gaining love from another. Rather, your fulfillment rests in giving love to everyone. If indeed you would know the capital T truth that sets you free, then heed each and every word that is being shared. If you would taste the sweet nectar of perfect freedom, then be committed to replacing every erroneous perception you've ever made and every thought you have ever held of everyone and everything. Set these things aside and commit the fullness of your energy to the simple but vigilant practice of remembering the capital T truth even prior to every breath. Here's how they state that truth. Quote, I live, yet not I, but Christ dwells in me. Therefore, I submit and surrender to the capital T truth, the truth that is true always. 
My fulfillment comes only from allowing Christ to be given to the world. Close quotes. This is a very high bar. Please understand as we talk about this. This is a very high bar. How could anybody, in in your culture, in my culture, the way we've been raised, let everything be okay as the lover comes and the lover goes? How can I recognize that I'm love and it's perfectly okay for me to extend love to somebody, even if they say, okay, I'm done with you, I want to go have sex with somebody else? or we've been building a business together for five or ten years, and all of a sudden they say, I don't want to do this anymore, and they cut me out of the business and take all the money. And I can still focus on my inner fulfillment, knowing that the truth that is true always is available for me to extend in this moment. It's a very high bar. And yet, all the great teachings tell us it's absolutely possible if we get rid of the old conditioned patterns, the path and the patterns that have never led to the bliss that we say we want. And we say instead, quote, I live and yet not I, but Christ dwells in me. Therefore, I submit and surrender to the truth of life, the truth of the flow of life events the truth that is true always, my true nature is love. And I recognize that my fulfillment comes only from allowing that Christ and the Christ mind to be entering the world through me as an open conduit. The text goes on and reads, The truth is very simple. It is not complex at all. Get out of the way and let capital L love live through you. And all of a sudden you will know that indeed you are given all good things eternally. You will know that grace is a reality. You will know that effortlessness is the way of life in the kingdom. But effortlessness effortlessness does not mean that you do not feel for you are in a dimension of feeling effortlessness does not mean that you do not discover how to deepen your ability to be the living embodiment of love capital L love it does not mean that you do not challenge yourself to learn to express that love in a way that can be heard by another Effortlessness means simply that you abandon the resistance to what love requires in each moment. That's a tough one. Effortlessness means you abandon the resistance to what love requires in each moment. It's pretty easy to think about what love requires in the moment when the lover comes. And the big check is in the bank. And people want to knock down your door and hand you money and say, you're a great teacher or you're a great student or you're a great actor or you're a great this or that. 
it's not so easy to keep extending love when the lover goes, when the bank account's empty. But we've already been told about this earlier in the book. This peace that passes all understanding is possible for us. The way of the heart ushers us into this practice so we can have this wide open allowance of what's happening as the walls in the building are crumbling, as the bank account is empty, as the lover leaves, we can still be the Christ mind extending this energy of love. We will feel the energies of the sadness and the hurt and the resentment that our culture has taught us to generate. And we will breathe and we will soften and we will challenge ourselves to express love in a way that can be heard by those around us. And the effortlessness means simply that we abandon the resistance to the flow of life and what that flow of life would require from us in each moment to be love in this moment, to teach only love in this moment, to share only our loving thoughts in this moment. That's their definition of effortlessness. The text goes on and reads, effortlessness is the way of the kingdom. In other words, extending love in each moment, regardless of the circumstances, is the way of the kingdom. In the world, effortlessness means that you let down the wall you have built between yourself and all of creation. You no longer resist the lived experience of relationship, whatever it is. Relationship with a cloud, relationship with another person, relationship with a dog or a cat, relationship with April 15th when you write your government a check. Why not wrap it with Christmas paper and ribbons and send it off with much love? When you have learned to release the barriers or the walls between yourself and whatever is in front of you, whatever life brings you, when you open the door to your chakras, the, the body's energy centers, and you simply allow love to be lived through you, when you look upon another person or another situation or another thing and realize that nothing in this world has the power to hurt you, and nothing in this world has the power to take anything of value from you. When you realize that, you are free. If you remember to extend love, then you are free. You have transcended birth and death. The seeker is no more, and only Christ walks this earth. It's a very high bar compared to what most in our culture have been trained to have seen with our families of origin and our friends and our cultures, even our religions. It is a very high bar because most of us have yet to experience anyone living at this level. 
most of us haven't even seen this from our, quote, religious leaders. Religious, quote, unquote, leaders. So I get it. I understand it completely. This is something that might sound bizarre, ridiculous, impossible, even untenable, unreasonable. And all I can tell you is every time I've gotten a step closer to this, my life gets better. Every time I catch myself choosing for fear or anger or hurt or confusion or guilt or shame or bitterness or resentment or judgment at any level, every time I catch that and release it, my life gets better. And these lessons, I'm telling you, the only way to prove it to yourself is step into the practice, get into the experience of it. It popped into my head that we had a support group one one time when this lesson was was up, and um, one of the members had just been through a situation where she was absolutely furious because she had been ripped off for, I think she said, $75,000. She had done work for somebody and they were refusing to pay her. And she'd billed out all these billable hours and now she was being told by attorneys that you know she didn't cross enough T's and dot enough I's and so she wasn't entitled to the money. And she said, so you know, I know that this, this teaching is garbage because you just said that nothing of value can be taken from me. And, and I said, well... You know, please take a breath and and soften and try to let this in. What this teaching is saying at an ultimate level is nothing. It doesn't say nothing can be taken from you. It says nothing of ultimate value can be taken from you. Yes, people can take your hat. They can take your car. They can take your money. People can take things... But things don't hold any value for you, especially when you've embraced the one true relationship, your relationship with your creator. And you're choosing to be an extension of that creative energy in form. Then nothing of true value can be taken from you and nothing of true value can be added unto you. And as it just so happened, I was able to speak from direct experience because not too many months before that that support group had taken place, I had been involved in a business deal where a person ripped me off for about $30,000. And I was able to apply the awareness of the tension in my body and my mind, I was able to use for the first time ever in my life in such a critical situation 
the suggestion of releasing and softening and returning to only loving thoughts. And it got me through that in the use of the tools, the reality management worksheets. I did a lot of them. And I was able to see all kinds of issues from my younger years that I was still carrying negative emotions and judgments about myself from those past situations. And I was able to let go of a lot of it. So I realize that it's a high bar. I also realize that most people who are engaging in a work like the Way of Mastery, they're just beginning. And there's so much more potential for choosing for love over fear and teaching only love and staying more consciously connected to our true nature than any of us can even begin to comprehend when we first start on the journey. It's like when you first decide to go for, for any journey, you can't, you can't know what's going to happen, how you're going to grow, what you're going to see. So yes, I understand that as we read this lesson in Lesson 6, it sounds like a very high bar. I also understand it is possible and that the benefits begin to accrue long before you reach that ultimate high bar. So, with blessings to everyone who's choosing to join us here today, I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I'll turn on the microphone for and welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. Appreciate it. Hope you're staying warm. Welcome into the Have a great show. Thanks. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Shifters Radio. And my computer just froze up here. Apologies. Okay, and my, today is Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. And their call-in number is 563-999-3581. Press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And, excuse me, we are doing the Enlightenment Study and so today's number two, and I created a page on the website, and it's getawhyagain.org, and over there's a section that says Kaboris, and underneath it, there's actually a title that says just Enlightenment, and that talks about the book. Underneath it, it says Enlightenment Study, and so if you click on that, it will take you to a page where I'm going to be putting, I'm editing out the second hour and actually putting it up on YouTube and so you'll be able to click and listen to the archives either via YouTube or I've recorded yesterday's on Podbean simultaneously and I'm going to try to do that again today and so you'll be able to pick it up either of those places but that way they'll all be in one place a couple of people wrote me and said that you know 
did they miss the show? <laughs> and so I'm not sure what happened there because it was active and working yesterday and we had a couple of questions and we appreciate your input on that. So um, when Michael gets on, we will start day two of the Enlightenment study. And I will just say, you know, Michael will be going, um, not this week, but next week, he's actually in a medical class on um He's driving on Thursday, and he's in the class on Friday. So those two days, I'm going to play. We did a show on the Kaboris manuscript being a source, being a true source to rely on. And then also we've got the Aramaicisms. So anytime we have to play a show. So Thursday, I'm going to play the uh, Kaboris uh, show, and then Friday, I'll play in Aramaicisms. And then anytime during the... Uh, enlightenment study that we need to play one, I'll play the next Aramaicisms. There's actually four of those, four hours. And so it'll still be in alignment with what we're doing. And if you haven't ordered your uh, enlightenment book and you would like to have one to go along with us, I'll just say again, you can order it through our catalog if you click on shop. However, the system automatically adds $9 shipping. So during this study, we're offering a special that if you just go to the donate button, and I've got this also on that uh, Enlightenment study page, uh, so everything's together on that. But if you just go to the donate button and donate $26, and that extra dollar covers the fees that PayPal hits us with, and we will pay the shipping and handling and get the book out to you. Um, mail hasn't run yet today. We're under about seven inches of snow, but I do have... Uh, about eight books here ready to go out. So you, you all that have ordered it uh, over the weekend, uh, mail didn't run yesterday because of the holiday. So they're ready, wrapped and ready to go out today. Anyway, you'll be able to pick up the archives of the Enlightenment show under that one link so you won't have to go searching for them. And we hope that you enjoy and participate with us. And so still waiting on... Michael to show up on my switchboard and if you have any questions please press 1 if you're listening on a station where we can't see you um, please go uh, dial in at 563-999-3581 and press 1 and that will put you into queue and uh, we do have a hand up so I'm going to go ahead and turn on Susan's microphone I'm still waiting on Michael to dial in. How are you doing, young lady? Hi, Jeannie. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm, I must have missed something essential when you start talking about this Enlightenment study. Is this the manuscript, the Kaboris manuscript that you're talking about when you're talking about a book? Um, actually, we um, the book called The Enlightenment is uh, a spiral-bound book um, all about half inch to three quarters inch thick um, and it's what had been translated so far out of the Kaboris so yes it's it's based on the Kaboris and it's uh, what had been translated out and so it includes it's the history of the Kaboris right yeah so it's actually so go ahead, Michael. published so far from it yeah it does not so, include all of the translation work but it, but it is what we've published so far from the Kaboris manuscript so I already had that then I don't know for sure, but I would think so. It's a yellow, or pardon me, a beige color, kind of a a uh, 
beige tan right. color looks a little bit like a uh, a piece of parchment and yeah okay um, that's what we're going to do that's what we're doing great <laughs> great well and and you're you're actually reading out of it as we go sorry i'm i'm just i feel as if i've probably been listening and it's gone in one ear and out the other <clears throat> um but you're talking well, that about that probably is an indicator that's probably been an indicator or is an indicator that you're in process so and you're paying attention to what's moving on the inside that's always a good thing well i don't know you can make all kind remarks if you want but i know you've been talking about this and i've been missing something so basic that when i go to the website i've just gone just now and i think i found the spot and it does look like the manuscript I already have, but I couldn't find the title to look the same. And <clears throat> so I just thought I... Yeah, it's uh, it's what we've published so far. There are three sections in the book. There's a story about how the book was found. There are some select mm-hmm. passages from the New Testament. And then what the translators mm-hmm. did back in the 70s when the original translation work was done was did the best they could do to establish the first century meanings of Yeshua's mm-hmm. words. So that's what we're heading toward is is a comprehension of what what those mean, and uh, it's a part actually of our laws of living course as well. So NBO has done laws of living. Uh, Enlightenment came as part of that course. In some cases, it was printed actually right into the laws of living course. In other cases, it was a separate book. That's what's there. And if there's anybody out there, you've got one. But if there's anybody out there that needs a copy or wants a copy to follow along, I don't know how long our work with this is going to take. I suspect we'll probably spend at least a year on it, Uh, although I haven't sat on a lesson plan. I'm just kind of with it and developing the the, uh, daily conversation as we move along. So I'm not sure how long that's going to stretch out. But if anybody wants to get a copy of it, normally if you order from the website, it adds shipping, which is another eight or nine dollars. And if you order it by going to our website and down toward the bottom, there's a donate button. If you click the donate button and donate $26, the manuscript's $25. PayPal takes a buck and a quarter. So if you donate $26, we'll we'll cover the shipping. So just if anybody orders it, if you would just put your name and your address so we know where to send it and the the word enlightenment so we'll know what to send you. So, But that's where we're heading, young lady. So are you ready to go rock and roll, ready to go for it? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I should say yes. You sound like you're maybe in a lot of process. Yeah, um, I don't know what's going on. I don't feel badly, but <clears throat> I've lost my voice. Tim has had pneumonia, and he's getting better. He's been home. He hasn't Ouch, had bless his heart. But... Um, Maybe something's moving around the house. Michael is sick, too. All three of us are mm-hmm. doing something. I'm not sure what. Well, get yourself some lemon and cayenne pepper, maybe a little bit of oregano oil. If you do oregano oil, I've been doing put a... Oh, good. Okay, well, that'll probably keep you from getting a deeper level of the crud, then. <laughs> I like how you... Call it the crud. One thing I like about oh, my deep voice is I sound more like Alan Watts. I love his voice. Ah. I love his chuckle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll carry cool. on. 
<laughs> All right, young lady. Good. Okay, Miss Jean, do we have anybody else in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? No, it is all quiet on the home front. All right. Well, let's move forward. We had um, given a couple of quotes, and I'll do more of those as we <clears throat> pardon me, unfold, but we'd given a couple of quotes on uh, how some of the Greek translations are just ridiculous and how when you hear the Aramaic, it all of a sudden makes sense. But I want to move in just a little different direction. One of the, and I was looking at quotes that, examples of quotes that don't make sense in Greek, but make sense in Aramaic. And uh, one of the commands that we hear uh, over and over and over again, whether it's in the Greek or in the Aramaic, is the command to heal uh, one's mind of fear. So well over 300 times, there's actually, I think it's a kind of a, uh, an old wives' tale, but there are people who say there are 365 times this command appears, and I, I've never sat down Conlon, but from just researching, people say, well, that's really not, it's not actually that number, but it's pretty close, that 365 times or 300 plus times in those ancient scriptures were told something, a, a variation on the phrase of fear not. Things like perfect love casts out fear. We hear Job saying, that which I feared most has come upon me. And it's clearly an important issue to deal with. In fact, it's the filter that destroys most people's reading of the scriptures themselves. Because if fear is active, all that the mind can show is something that's based in irritation and upset. And so we have people with all kinds of irritation and upset have no idea that it's about what's going on in their own minds. They think it actually comes from the scriptures, and they stand up there and they rage and they rail out of their own resolved, uh, unresolved hostility and fear. But if you look at this fear, you know, you hear that statement, and it, it, it speaks of fear. And again, this does come through clearly in the Greek, almost as a demon, you know, to be cast out. So I want to kind of take a look at that, but I'm going to, before we delve deeper into it, I want to read a story from a Canadian newspaper that was printed in 1942. And the reason I'm reading this story is because it's a really good example of how we can get trapped in living in a fantastical world and thinking that we're in the actual world. You know, for me, what I've learned from the Aramaic Yeshua is that his words, his directions, his tools are always pointing us in the direction of experiencing the actuality of the creator as the creator created it, rather than realities built by the brain cells in our minds, rather than reality, the constructs of the mind, rather than perception, that we need to undo perception, which is fantasy land, and return to the actuality. So here's the story. The title of the, the story is, oh, my page just jumped. Come on now, stop it. The title of the story is two places, two centuries at one time, question mark. 
And it answers that story, or, or pardon me, it, it asks the question, can a ship be in two places at the same time? And it answers that and says, under certain conditions, the answer is yes, exclamation point. Now, for me, this simple introduction to this article shows how insane we can be. If we live in perception, and you remember that Yeshua warns us, don't judge by appearances. I'd offer that the word appearance and perception here could be interchangeable. So this is the insanity of perception. Here this article is being printed saying that, yes, there are conditions in which you can be in two places at the same time. So the story goes on to unfold one of those conditions, ostensibly. But you'll notice that most of it's about a fantasy. And to me, this is just a, a really powerful example of how so often we live in fantasies created by men's minds. Now, sometimes, as we've pointed out in the past, our fantasies are useful. Like, you know, we have a radio show at 12 o'clock every day, 1 o'clock every day. Well, you know, in the actuality, time doesn't exist. It's something we made up, but it's a useful fantasy. And, and so, great, it's a useful fantasy. I think that you can use a fantasy without knowing it, and it can be very destructive. If you use a fantasy knowing that it is a fantasy, it's just a construct that we made up, it can be useful. You don't get trapped in crazy stuff if you understand that something is a fantasy. So the article unfolds. Captain John Duffy Sidney Phillips was a shipmaster who managed an unusual feat of navigation. For some 15 years, Skipper Phillips commanded liners on the Vancouver, Australia run. Now a resident of Sydney. So this is referring back, actually. This guy was a ship captain back in the late 1900s, early or pardon me, late 18, early 1900s. And he now lives in Australia, and this article is printed in 1942. So it's been a few decades since it happened, but they explain why they're, they're uh, writing this article. Now a resident of Sydney, Captain Phillips has been looking through his old log books, and he's produced a record of a remarkable incident. It deals with the international dateline, which fashions her. They turn in at night to find that on awakening, they've lost a day. So remember, when you cross the international dateline, you lose a whole day, not just a couple of hours like, you know, daylight saving time, you know, forward and backward. But when you cross the dateline, a whole day disappears. This line bisects the equator between the Elise and Phoenix Islands, and it was there that Captain Phillips put a ship in two places at once. Again, a fantasy. They're speaking about it like it's an actuality. It clearly is not an actuality, as you will see. He was in command of the Waramu, that was the name of the ship, bound from Vancouver to Brisbane, Australia, early on December 30th, 1899. So we're the day before New Year's Eve on 1899, or pardon me, in 1899. His second in command, Captain F.J. Baldon, 
pointed out that if he cared to alter the ship's course a degree or two and suitably adjust her speed, they could cross the 180th meridian where it intersected with the equator at exactly 12 midnight. This prankish idea appealed to Captain Phillips and the necessary orders were given. Five experienced navigators took careful observations of the sun when it was visible and the stars at night. The ship's position was checked every three hours, and she reached the appointed spot at the appointed time. Now, if you do some research on this, you'll find that uh, today the, the state of navigation says it was very unlikely with the technology at that time that they actually did this, but theoretically they did it. Uh, but the technology probably wasn't accurate enough that they actually were in the physical location that they described being, but that's an aside. So here is where the perception and the fantasy world of appearances become clear and they described the positioning of the ship. The bow of the Warimu was in the southern hemisphere. Now, is there a southern hemisphere and a northern hemisphere? Is there north and south? No. That's something we made up. It's useful. <clears throat> Gee, if I'm heading to your house and you're north of me, it's a good thing if I know north from south. But, but in fact, that's just something we constructed. Do you think when a bird flies south for the winter, if you stopped it and said, uh, well, which direction are you flying, it would say south? No. The actuality doesn't complain a north and a, contain a north and a south. But we made up words and a concept that is very useful. So its bow is in the southern hemisphere, a fantasy, but her stern was in the northern hemisphere, another fantasy. One side of her was in the Western Hemisphere, another fantasy. The other in the Eastern Hemisphere, still another fantasy. The passengers and crew in the forward part of the ship were living on Monday, January 1st, 1900. Now, we made up the calendar. It's another fantasy, so not actuality. So the passengers at the front of the ship, to them, the date is Monday, January 1st, 1900. And the passengers and crew in the back of the ship were still on Saturday. Remember that date disappears? December 30th, 1899. They lost the day. Those forward were in a new century. Those aft were in the old century. And those aboard were the first people on earth to hail the new century and the last to bid the old century farewell. Two continents, one fantasy. Now, I hope I read that and explained that in a way that makes sense. That, you know, here it is positioned so that the four quadrants of the ship are in fantastically generated places, ideas generated by our minds, appearances, that bear no resemblance whatsoever to actuality. This whole thing about hemispheres and latitude and longitude are things that we made up. Useful. And, and the reason I'm talking about this so much is when you look at the world, and I introduced this with the idea of perfect love casts out fear, when you look at the world of fear, it is a fantasy made up by men. 
And if you listen to the instructions from a man named Job, who went through all these trials and tribulations, he announces the conclusion he comes to as to why he lived in such trauma. And that is, that which I feared most has come upon me. That which I dreaded has happened to me. Now, I'd offer that fear is a resistant energy to truth that we've made up, and it's a fantasy. It's something we've created. And if we're living in the actuality of who we are, then love displaces that fantasy. And to me, that's the whole essence of the New Testament. That's the whole essence on a practical level of attempting to get people out of the fantastical world with which they create the very results that they're resisting by being in fear in that fantasy because fear becomes the amplifier for the creative energy that they hold and that creative energy is about what they don't want and so they create it. So my offering as we're looking at this Aramaic study and going to a new depth, hopefully, is that the Aramaic teachings of Yeshua are continuously pointing us to actuality, and the Greek words are a reflection of perception, and therefore tend to keep us in this fantastical world of the made-up, of the fantasy. Now, perception is an interesting world. Fascinating. But like our story of the Wamu, Waramu, pardon me, the name of the boat, it's a fantasy. He listened at one point, and I believe this is what Yeshua was referring to when he spoke about, you know, those who are the, the highest in the realm of fantasy. In other words, the genius mind living out of carbon-based memory that lives in perception can seem like the genius and, boy, got everything together and figured out, but they're the very lowest when they move into the actuality. Because they're still, even though their their fantasies are pretty good, even though their perceptions pretty good, it isn't actuality. And what Yeshua is attempting to get people to do is step out of the constructs of their minds, the realities based on generations and generations and generations of fantasies, especially fantasies based in fear, learning to forgive those and to return to the truth of who we are. One who's stuck in this world of, of, of perception, which Yeshua offers a tool for defeating that world, for ridding yourself of that world, and that tool is called forgiveness. Now notice that the Greeks took forgiveness and put it into a fantasy, the perceptual world of, you're the problem in my life, you're the reason I'm experiencing this, therefore I will forgive you. And if you are in that world, if you're playing that game, then you qualify for being one of the lowest if you are thinking about moving on to the next level of actuality because the mind's still living in a fantasy world. And Yeshua had a, uh, a term for living in that world. It's reflected in a passage um, shortly after Yeshua comes out of the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter has injured the high priest's servant. And he's 
stepped in to try to prevent the demonstration that Yeshua had planned. Like, he's going to stop him. You remember that Peter, on the way to Gethsemane, asks Yeshua, <clears throat> out of his fantastical mind and his fantastical world, how many swords should we bring? They're expecting that Yeshua is going to be the swordsman that defeats the whole Roman world. And Yeshua says, well, just bring one. Yeshua, living in the actuality, has a reason for allowing him to bring a sword. He's got a lesson to teach him. Peter thinks he's bringing the sword so that Yeshua can wipe out the Roman world. And Peter turns this sword on the high priest servant who is going to have Yeshua mercilessly slaughtered. And Peter's being the valiant, living in perception. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to kill the high priest servant. If you remember, Yeshua had a name for him. And I'd offer this name is a name that applies to anyone that's living in perception, who's living in this fantastical world of what was also in the scriptures called the mind of man. So Peter, in that situation, turns to, or pardon me, Yeshua turns directly to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. And to read it from the Greek, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, if you've got the brain cells for it, you can understand that he's saying you're either living in perception or actuality. The Aramaic is closer. The Aramaic says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because you do not reason of God, but of humans. In other words, you're stuck in the mind of man rather than the plan of God. You're stuck in perception, a construct of your mind based on your fantasy of fear. And that fantasy of fear, when it's turned into perception, keeps you from understanding what I'm doing here. Get out of my way. You're blocking exactly what I'm here to teach. Now, just a little aside, I've had people who've heard me present that explanation before that have said, well, <clears throat> Michael, did you notice that by stopping Peter, uh, that got him dead? And my response has always been, well, yes, I noticed that Yeshua stopping Peter from saving him got him dead. Did you notice he couldn't keep him that way? Priest servant and all the king's men couldn't keep Yeshua from life. And many people have a great admiration for suffering. In fact, they're told to just give their suffering over to God, like God wants suffering. You know, God wants sacrifice. Go read the passage that says, to those just sacrificing those bulls, the smell of that blood is horrible to my nostrils. Stop it. And yet, there's still this whole theory about suffering. And if you understand that passage correctly, where Peter says, or Yeshua says, get behind me, Yeshua has a plan. And he's demonstrating, many people have interpreted that whole thing in the crucifixion as the, the power and wonderment of suffering and how we're saved by suffering. But if you've got that, that's perception, that's living in the fantasy world of fear and suffering. And if you've got the brain cells, 
then what you understand is what he was doing was demonstrating the power of living as a human being. The power of living is love. Peter injures the arch enemy. Yeshua stops him. He probably would have put the sword through him if he'd had another chance. You can bet he wasn't just shooting for an ear. He was shooting to take his head off. Yeshua stops him. And then rather than dressing down the high priest servant and finishing the job of killing him, what does Yeshua do? He demonstrates the power of living a human life, the power of living out of love, out of the actuality of who we are. Rather than being stuck in the mind of man, which he clearly describes is the definition of Satan. Most people in our world live in the constructs of their minds and know no better and know nothing other than that. But what Yeshua demonstrated was, here's the arch enemy. Am I going to hate him? Am I going to live out of the fantasy of fear and, and kill and murder and slaughter and all of that crazy stuff? No. He demonstrates the power of reaching forward, maintain, not yielding his human life to the trauma that's before him, but bringing love to the party, bringing love to the presence of that experience, all the way through to the crucifixion. He demonstrated they couldn't keep him dead. He did that by living in the actuality of functioning as a human being rather than being stuck in the mind of man. When you hear that fear not fantasy, when you listen to things that are based in fear, it's the fantasies of fear that destroy us. And it's pretty tough to get that from the Greek translations. And, and why I'm bringing that up is to, to really anchor the reason why we're going to look step by step more deeply into the Aramaic language and the teachings of Yeshua from the Aramaic perspective rather than from the Greek. So in essence, that fear not command would be followed with live in the actuality, live as the perception of love rather than these fantasies of fear with which you destroy yourself. So if we understand the implications of Yeshua's teachings in Aramaic, of which the Greeks didn't have a clue, and you'll know how strongly the Greeks will claim everything if you let them. If, if you saw the movie, what came to mind as I was working on this was, if you saw the movie, the great, My Great Big Fat Greek Wedding, you remember the father was always proclaiming how the Greeks did it, the Greeks created it, the Greeks owned it, the Greeks made it up, the Greeks discovered it, the Greeks, the Greeks, the Greeks, the Greeks. Well, they were at that time pretty much the highest, I think, of men living in perception, living in the constructs of carbon-based memory. Now, if you recognize that, and, and you, you'll run into people if you have a conversation. And in some cases, it's best just to leave the conversation alone because people can get pretty upset and pretty vicious if you, they're, gonna, they're going to tend to project their unresolved fear, which is why they're living in perception, if you tell them that the Aramaic came first. You know, I mean, think about it. If, if, you've, if you're, let's say you're a person who's well, you're still paying tens of thousands of dollars off in school loans. 
in order to get your advanced degree in Greek theology. And when I invite you to recognize that your interpretation of the scriptures is totally, completely off base and false, I mean, let's take a look at it. We got about 2,000 years of Greek translations and thought, which is, you know, in most um, educated circles, it's it's all Greek. It's, you know, it's really believed that it's Greek. We've got about 2,000 years of it, and we're now at somewhere in the range of about 32,000 different sects of perceptual fantasies, that is, so-called Christian sect, believe they have the idea, and they just happen to be one of the lucky ones that was born into the right denomination that had the actual truth, because the other 31,999 didn't know. Don't expect the PhD to jump up and down, the one that's a tenured professor still paying off his or her loans, to jump up and down and go, oh, it was Aramaic? You mean I get to throw out everything I've got and I have to go back to school and start over? Or I have to go get a shovel and get a job? That's kind of what you're asking somebody to do when you ask them to acknowledge that the Aramaic was prime. So the Greek mistranslations and the Greek misunderstandings are, in terms of applicability, like a shadow compared to the in-depth understanding of the Aramaic words. To the degree that you'll notice that one of the foundations of most Greek theologians, Greek-trained theologians, and this is in the name of a man who on at least 15 occasions said something to the effect of variations on the theme with words, but basically said, fear not. And yet you'll hear the Greek trained preachers tell you, and actually worshiping unknowingly, in the Aramaic context, a demon. You know, if you think about perfect love casts out fear, fear is a demon to be cast out, and yet we get people at very high levels who will tell you that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, if that's not worshiping a demon, when you realize fear is just a demon, it's just an error in the mind that needs to be corrected. If, if over 300 times in the scriptures, and at least 15 times, Yeshua says, fear not, why would anybody even start to put forward a thought, especially a trained, educated person in the field, put forward a thought like fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? This is worshiping a demon in, in the Aramaic context now, not, not the, the Greek context with the demons and the evil, ugly, nasty beings and your critters and all of that, just in, in the real reality of it, telling us that the way to deep relationship to, with the creator is through fear, the deep relationship, entering into relationship with love comes from fear, and that's where you start with the wisdom. And that's about the level of wisdom that comes from perception, from the constructs of the human mind. And again, in the Aramaic, Yeshua is always pointing us to the actuality, living, how to live in the actuality of the Creator, not how to live in perception. 
how to live in appearances. Someone who believes the story about the Wamu, about this ship being in four different locations at the same time, in two different centuries, on two different oceans, in two hemispheres, you know, I mean, believing that that's possible. Yes, they were in this position on the earth. And we made up a story. We created a fantasy about hemispheres and datelines and longitude and latitude, but it's all made up. And the article that said we could be in certain conditions in two different places at the same time is, of course, silly. And so much of what comes out of the, I mean, everything that's based, if you've ever heard a preacher railing, everything that's based in hostility or fear is insane relative to unity. In recognizing the truth of who we are, the unity that is humanity, the so-called mystical body of Christ. There's nothing religious about it. Einstein even agrees with it. Einstein says, if you think you're separate or separated from the rest of humanity, you're living in an optical delusion. So the truth is, in the actuality, there is one energy system that we are a part of. We're all cells in it, so to speak. That's another good metaphor for coming out of the perceptual belief in separation. And when we start to experience from there, then we've moved from perhaps being the highest in the intellectual realm, in the fantasy world, in perception, into just starting on the lower rungs of the ladder of actuality, of living as we're designed to do. And so... I hope that makes sense as a kind of another piece of the foundation of where we're going. And if, if anyone has any questions, comments, thoughts, you're welcome at any time through this study to put your hand up. And, uh, and you know, let's, get, let's get right down into the very depths of it. And uh, if questions are there, let's get them answered, or at least let's entertain them and see where we can move with it so that we can move forward. Ms. Jeannie, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? And, and by the way, if somebody's, you know, we're here to support the forgiveness work, so if somebody has a question in that arena, you're welcome to put your hand up anytime through it, and we'll go into answering questions about forgiveness or any and all of the tools. If you're doing the codependence to interdependence communication practical and self-study, we're here to support you. Any questions that come up, ask them at any time. So, Ms. Jeannie, do we have anything happening? in the conqueror no it is all quiet no hands up okay okay well i hope that's because everybody's getting this and processing going yes rock and roll so i want to then another to to lay the groundwork for the practical aspect of understanding the aramaic teachings rather than getting lost in the greek there's, there's one single idea that is conveyed in the Aramaic that is totally lost in the Greek that I believe 
is responsible for millions of deaths, millions of divorces, murders, conflicts, and even wars. One simple idea that when it was translated into the Greek doesn't make any sense. When you've got the Aramaic brain cells, it not only makes sense, but it gives you an understanding of how to move out of the power person dynamics, the generational hostility, fear, and abuse that tends to run the world. In fact, this single principle, the power person dynamic, I would offer runs 99.999% of the world 99.999% of the time. And I don't care whether you're talking about businesses or families or communities or churches. This dynamic is running the world. And the world at this moment, if you think of sanity being living in and as the presence of love, the world's pretty insane, pretty bizarre. So what is this one idea that's destroyed millions of lives and is doing so today? So one of the things you'll hear Yeshua say is the way the Greeks translate it is sufficient for the day are the evils thereof. And you look at that in Greek and you go, what the heck? Sufficient for the day are the evils thereof. Like, what does that even start to mean? And yet, this is a core pivot point if you understand the Aramaic in terms of healing one's mind. You wouldn't know it when you look at the fantastical world of perception, as the Greeks have brainwashed this into that he was talking here about stress and giving people a message as to how to stay out of the kind of stress that leads to violence. You remember when we've talked about the power person dynamic, that once the power person dynamic is instilled in someone's mind, it will run their lives for the rest of their lives, and they'll be limited to just three behaviors related to the power person. If you haven't heard this conversation, I'll just throw in a few, uh, some of the basic foundational ideas and then work up to why this particular passage is so important. The power person is usually a parent, and it's usually an interaction between a parent and a child, although not necessarily it can happen in other circumstances as well. And three things happen to instill a power person dynamic in a child's mind. Number one, the power person, usually the parent, has more power over the child than the child has. Number two, the power person, the parent, is not functioning as a human being. They're not functioning as love. They're functioning out of some form of hostility or fear functioning out of perception. And three, the child, the object of the situation, perceives the circumstance as survival. So when those three things happen, 
The energy field of the child opens. When you think of us, rather than being physical beings as energetic beings, we open on every level in that circumstance. When those three conditions are met, our field, if we're the child in the situation, opens. And when we open, we become like a sponge and just suck in every energy from the environment. Literally, just sucking the energy in. doesn't matter. The energy does not need to be spoken or expressed in any way, shape, or form. All it has to do is be there. The parent who's standing there with a clenched fish in fist, enraged and trying to calmly direct the child as to what to do, the child is still absorbing the energy of rage. They just take everything on from the environment. And then, once they're past that circumstance, the rest of their lives, until that dynamic is understood and resolved, forgiven in them, that dynamic will run the rest child's life. This has been going on forever, generation after generation after generation. When that occurs, there are only three behaviors possible for that child. I don't care if that child has grown into an adult of 90 years. There's only, there are only three behaviors possible. And the behaviors they will do will be related to the level of stress that they are under. When there's no stress, they'll do whatever their power person, or pardon me, they'll do whatever they did to get along with their power person. No stress, little stress, they'll do what they did to get along with their power person. When stress starts to build in that person's life, they'll do whatever they did to resist and survive with their power person. When that person becomes ultra-stressed, They'll do whatever their power person did to them that they hated the most. That runs the world. Now, why is this passage, sufficient for the day are the evils thereof, so important to that circumstance? What, what, is, what does one have to do with the other? Well, if you go to the Aramaic passage where the, we're told it says, sufficient for the day are the evils thereof, what you find is that the word evil there, as translated, has nothing to do with the whole Greek evil, you know, demons, nasty, it's got nothing to do with that. The word evil has two different translations, or at least two different meanings in Aramaic, depending on context, syntax, and such. One, it's related to the archery term sin. You know, if you're on the archery range and you fire at the target, and you miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper yells sin. If you miss the target altogether, then the scorekeeper would yell out evil. You're off target totally. But then there's a second translation of the word evil. And that is, in, in our modern language, would be unripened. So we have a piece of fruit. You know, we just plucked it off the tree and it's hard as a rock we would say that that piece of fruit is evil in Aramaic. We'd apply that meaning of the word evil. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's not bad. It's not nasty. It's not any of the Greek implications that come with the word evil. It simply means it's not ready to eat. It's not in its proper place or in its proper time for eating. If we picked the piece of fruit from the tree and we left it on the table for a month and came back and it's all brown and mushy and all collapse on itself, once again, the word evil would be applied to that. If we pick the piece of fruit and we know the moment at which it is its peak of ripeness, 
the flavors, the, uh, the smell, the nutrients are at their peak and ready to feed you, and we were to eat that piece of ripened fruit, that piece of fruit is no longer evil. So it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. It's just the stage of ripeness that it's at. So when we hear that sufficient for the day are the evils thereof, what Yeshua is saying is sufficient for the day, have no more incomplete projects on your plate than you can finish today. Sufficient for the day are the unripe or the incomplete things that you have on your mind. In other words, have any goals for today. Don't hold any goals in your mind that you can't achieve today. And the reason for that is, remember the thing that drives people to the power person dynamic, which is usually what creates the violence in the world, is the power person dynamic? It's been passed on from generation to generation to generation for eons. The thing that that takes people to the place where the power person dynamic takes over, oftentimes against their own will and choice, is stress. You won't likely find this piece of information anywhere but here, and in our Laws of Living course, it's basically where we've, it comes from, is that stress is created, and you can go out into the world and you can study. I've done it. Go to stress management courses, and you'll be told about how you've got to have goals, and you've got to set your daily goals and your weekly goals, maybe your hourly goals and your monthly goals and your six-month goal and your one-year goal and your 10-year goal and your 20-year goal and your lifetime goal, and you walk out of there with so much stress that you just violated that piece of information Yeshua gave. Sufficient for the day are the goals thereof, the incomplete projects, the things unripened in your life. In other words, each time you set a goal, you create a stress. If you put so many goals into your mind that you are ultra-stressed, then your mind is driven to serve up as behavior, the power person dynamic, and that's what introduces violence into the world, into relationships, into marriages, into parental relationships, into government relationships, into church relationships. It's goals, driving stress, elevating the stress to the point where people default to their power person behavior. So when you understand from the Aramaic perspective that Yeshua is saying is, only set goals that you know you can accomplish today, today being the next waking period, the day sufficient for the day, and put everything else in your planner. We have a worksheet for that. It's called the Mind Goal Management Sheet. And it's about managing your goals And by managing your goals, you get to, through indirection, manage your mind. And you keep your stress at levels that are acceptable so that the power person dynamic never shows up in your life. So this one idea I would offer is the root, this one missing idea out of Yeshua's mouth. I mean, the genius, we're we're just scratching the surface of the genius that's in the Aramaic. It's the one language 
that is based in the physics of the world. If you look at every other language, English, Russian, German, Swedish, Spanish, I don't care what it is, every one of those was made up in the minds of men. We made up, you know, created some grunts and groans, and we called them words, and we said this grunt means this, and that groan means that. So this is all from the minds of men, and the things that came from the minds of men were called the Tower of Babel in that ancient language and teaching. The Aramaic language, if you look at the letters of the Aramaic alphabet, which incidentally, it is the Aramaic alphabet that today is used for writing Hebrew. The letters are actually Aramaic. They are 3D shadows of the atomic periodic table of the elements. If you were to look at the, the shadow that would be cast by an electron moving around a proton, by two electrons moving around two protons and a neutron, that 3D shadow is where the letters of the Aramaic alphabet come from. It's rooted in the actual physics of the world, not in the minds of men. And so the genius of what we've been given with just this one piece of information, sufficient for the day, are the goals that you can accomplish. Don't set a goal for tomorrow. Because what happens is each time you set a goal, you've instructed the mind to go to work on something. So each goal increases the activity of the mind. If you've got more activity going on in the mind than the mind is designed to handle, then you move into that ultra-stress place, and that's where the automatic decision system kicks in and people start doing power person behaviors. So every goal increases the activity of mind. Think about it in terms of your computer. You know, you've got a computer that when you open it and you, say, go to your word processor, and you can write away till your heart's content and it works like a charm. And you're writing something, you decide you need to look at some information in an email, and so you open your email program, and it works like a charm. And the email program said you needed to look at a picture in your picture program, your uh, picture editor, and you open that, and it works like a charm. And then from that picture, you were instructed you had to go and open your CAD program. And when you opened your CAD program, all of a sudden, the computer started to bog down and crash because sufficient for the operation of your computer means you don't open more programs than the computer can handle. It's kind of the same command. You Each goal creates an increased activity in the mind. The mind only has a certain capacity of information or activity that it can process before it starts to crack. And when it starts to crack, that's when we default to those power person behaviors. So remember, every time you set a goal, you're asking your mind to do a job and you're increasing activity in the mind. Do you have the resources to take on that activity? If not, cancel the goal and write it down in your planner. Use the mind goal management sheet. That's what it's designed for. 
in order to preserve that goal for future attention, but recognizing, you know, gee, this is something I can't do till next Thursday. Well, if I load a goal in my mind, I've got to pick up the ABC item at the XYZ store next Thursday. If I put that in my mind today, what did I do? I just increased the activity in my mind. Can I do anything with that activity? No, I can't buy it till next Thursday. Then get it out of your mind. Put it down in your planner. You just alleviated your mind of that activity. You've reclaimed the resources. Same as if you notice your computer program, your computer crashes by the time you get the CAD program open, it's because it's overwhelmed the resources. Close the CAD program down. Or if you need to use CAD, then shut down your word processor and your picture editor. Now your computer runs fine. It's so different with the human mind. The resources are finite in the mind, in physiology. Now, how did Yeshua understand that 2,000 years ago? I don't know. But I'm sure glad he did. Because I certainly probably would never come across that or understand that piece of information without that, those brain cells, without that knowledge. And what we're going to do as we unfold this study is we're going to uncover just mountains and mountains and mountains of things that are going to empower each person to move beyond the world of fantasy, beyond the world of appearance or constructs of the mind, into developing the skills and the faculties to weaken the dynamics that are already stuck in the mind based in hostility or fear and open the higher faculties so that we have direct access to this, the actuality as it is. Rather than living in the mind of man, they will tap into what's the creator's God in mind, what's, what's the actuality that this is about. So that's the direction we want to head, and I hope that makes sense as another block of information. We're going to you know, set these up as building blocks, and Jeannie is taking these, uh, these sessions, and we're going to do this. She's going to do this. Thank you, Jeannie, for your skill and your willingness, your ability to do it, but we're going to take each of these sessions, turn them into a video, which means they'll just be a picture of some kind, but we'll have in, in our YouTube channel each of these lessons will, will show up sequentially. And so this study will be isolated out and available on our YouTube channel. And I'll just put out a, a thought, and that is if you're, if you're out there in listener land and this work has touched you and benefiting you, one of the things we could use is a support in starting to convert what we're ultimately, one of the visions that I'm holding is that ultimately we convert all 5,000 hours of our radio show into a format where they can be loaded on YouTube. So it means that they have to go from an MP3 to an MP4. It takes a conversion process. If you've got the brain cells for that, or even if you don't, but you've got a computer and you'd be willing to support us and assist in that, that'd be an awesome project for somebody to volunteer to participate in and assist us to do. So we appreciate you joining us and hold the space for you to have the best year yet of your eternal life. Thanks and blessings and look forward to joining you tomorrow. Please also pass a link on, let people know we're doing this, and uh, we'll see what, uh, how, how far afield this, uh, this next piece of work goes with our, uh, our work on MindShifters Radio. Blessings. Thank you. Bye-bye.